Jesus did. I have the same mind that Jesus had. Well, see, really, because of what we have been influenced to as an interpretive base for Scripture, how we interpret Scripture, how we relate to Scripture, is so far removed from the intention uh, of, of the writers and so far removed from sometimes from even what the language means that, that we end up with no real practical, functional application for what many of these scriptures mean. And so today I want to, I really want to revisit our, our whole concept of what it means to be connected to Jesus as Lord. How does Jesus become wisdom to me? How does that really happen? How, do I, how, can, how can I really, in every situation, have the mind of Christ? And, 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 it, and it not be some spiritual, goofy, uh, you know, mystical, subjective. Everybody say subjective. subjective. Man, I'll tell you, the world is going amok with subjectivity. You know, subjectivity is where you interpret things around you or you interpret the Scripture based on how it feels to you, based on how it makes you feel. You know, a, a, a friend of mine, you know, years ago, there were only three of us that were preaching grace on a national level. It was me and Andrew Walmack and one other guy. And I was the only one preaching grace on an international level. And uh, so we were all friends and ministered together and kind of, you know, on and off worked with each other. And so the, the guy that I don't mention because I'm really not trying to attack him or trying to bring, you know, anything negative about him personally but when we first became friends and started ministering together, he would call me up and say, Jim, I've been studying this passage of Scripture. Help me understand what it says in the original language. Because, and I'm not, a, I'm not a language scholar, but I just know how to use the tools and, and have had training in that area. And so, you know, sometimes he would say, man, I'm so glad I talked to you because I was thinking that this was kind of saying something else. And he was, he said, I'm about, I was about ready to start teaching a whole different concept than what this really, what this really means. And, uh, you know, I never tried to tell him how he should or shouldn't interpret Scripture. He would just call me. And, you know, we'd just talk about these things over the phone and visit together. <clears throat> but, it, but then a change started taking place in him where the next step was he would call me and say, man, the other night I was preaching. I just kind of had this pulpit inspiration, and I, and I said this. And he'd say, it was, was that really accurate? <laughs> and many times it, it wouldn't be. And, uh, and he'd, he'd kind of be a little remorseful of the fact that he was just coming out with these things that, that really when you took the Scripture apart or looked at what the rest of the Word of God said, it just, it just didn't hold up. But then he graduated to the next phase, and that would be, I don't care what it says, this is what God showed me it meant. Now, I'll tell you something. That's where nearly every Christian I know really lives on a daily basis. Because if you don't have the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God, in a, in, a, in a meaningful way, then the real truth is when you start making decisions, you're going to make decisions just based on what makes sense to you. You're going to make decisions based on your logic, based on your life experience, and that's called subjectivity. And the Bible warns us, it, not, not just about how we make decisions, but how we interpret Scripture. And, uh, you know, the Apostle Peter warned us about uh, what he called private interpretation. And private interpretation, part of that concept is to interpret Scripture kind of in the way that it suits you. 
rather than in light of the whole counsel of God. Now, the Word of God and Jesus himself is referred to as the Logos. And one of the things about the Logos is, is the Logos is consistent with every other word of Logos. In other words, you cannot interpret any scripture independent of every other thing that God ever said. Matter of fact, the Hebrew word for truth, but I'll tell you what, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let's, let's, just, let's just dive in here. You know, Jesus, we all know this, John 10, 10. Jesus came so that we might have life, have it more abundantly. And that word for life comes from the Greek word zoe, and that word zoe means the quality of life given by the one who possesses it. Now, this seems too extravagant to be true. I, Jesus came so that I could have the quality of life that he had because he had the quality of life that God had. Now, you know when you look at the world and the shape the world's in and everything that's going on and all the things we're facing on a daily basis, for most of us, that is just, a, that is just not even within our, our scope of, of, of possibility. You know, when I got saved, <clears throat> I, um, I read a book. I had not been, I'd probably only been saved about a year, and I read a book. And, and I don't recommend reading any other books by this particular writer, but uh, it, was, it was a book by Watchman Nee, and it was actually the only book he ever wrote. All of his other books were written by a cult that formed around him, and kind of they, they, they kind of went off the rails. But the, the book that I read that he actually wrote was called The Normal Christian Life. Has anybody ever read that? <clears throat> you know, that, that had a really profound effect on me because it presents, it presents a concept that that normal is really to live like Jesus lived. Normal is to do the works that Jesus did. Normal is to have that quality of life. And everything else is, is subnormal. Now, our problem is we do with life what doctors do with medicine. See, if you go to the doctor, if you went to the doctor uh, 20 years ago and you had a thyroid test and, you got a, and it came back a certain way, they'd say, well, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with your thyroid. But then if you went to the doctor today and had the same thyroid test and got the same numbers, that doctor may, may tell you something totally different. And you're like, well, wait a minute. The numbers are the same. Yeah, but what we do is we determine what's normal by averaging what's happening with everybody. Well, what if everybody's sick? And, and that's your average. That's your standard of normal. This is normal. Now, everybody, everybody that's normal is dying and has no energy, but this is a normal. So you're normal. Well, that's what we've done with our faith we brought our standard of normal down to kind of the average common denominator of what's, of what's happening for most people. And so instead of Jesus really being our standard, the truth is uh, uh, everybody else is our standard. <clears throat> so if we've got our sights set lower than the quality of life that Jesus offered, then we've just got our sights set too low. And, and you know, you'll probably hit your target but uh, uh, it, it won't be the kind of success that you want it. Now, <clears throat> our, Jesus came to open our eyes to two primary things. And these two primary things are first and foremost, Jesus came to show us what we would look like if we actually took the limits off of God. You know, Acts 10, 38 talks about how the God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. You know, Jesus never worked one miracle because he was as the Son of God. Right. Everything Jesus ever did, he did 
as a man, limited to all of the aspects of any man, that yielded to the Holy Spirit. So, so if I really gave up and surrendered my concepts of, of who I think I am, the old man, and actually put on the new man, and to the degree that I do that, I should be becoming more and more like Jesus, and I should be becoming more and more capable of living and doing the very things that Jesus did. Second thing that Jesus had to open our eyes to is actually the identity of God. Now, Jesus came to show us God's true character, God's true nature. In John 17, uh, 3, uh, when Jesus goes on talking about this abundant life, say, again, we read one of those scriptures, I come, you might have a life, have it more abundant. You're like, well, I got saved, I got Jesus, so where's this abundant life? Where's this? Because that word abundant life is the word zoe. Where's this wonderful life I'm supposed to have? Because if I got Jesus, you know, don't I have this? Well, again, we have this tendency to pluck verses out and interpret them independently of everything else that God says. Because in John 17, 3, he says, he says and this is Zoe, to know God and Jesus whom he has sent. So <clears throat> it does, these things don't happen automatically. They are given freely. They are automatically given. It, it, it's, it's sort of like just being born in a family have you ever noticed in some families, uh, uh, you know, maybe two or three of the kids really live within the standard of living of that family, but, uh, but maybe one or two of the kids just live like animals? And you're just thinking, you're, uh, now don't try to figure out which one of my kids I'm talking about here now. <coughs> and so you're, so you're just kind of thinking, how does that happen that in this one family, all of these resources that's available to all of these kids, this lifestyle that's available to all these kids, you know, everything that these parents have, and you've got, you know, and I, you know, you, I, know, I know wealthy people whose kids, you know, take on the family name, the family identity, go out and succeed, and then they'll have some kid that's living in a homeless shelter. And you say, what happened? Well, that's the same way it is with us. All these things are freely given, but that doesn't mean that we've received them, that we've gone through the biblical process of how we put these things on, how we incorporate these things in our life. For, you know, just like I started out, you know, a lot of, everybody's got the mind of Christ offered, but that don't mean that everybody's not stupid. Everybody's got a healing given. That doesn't mean everybody gets healed. Just like the whole world has salvation given, it doesn't mean everybody gets saved. But, it, but, but that doesn't mean that it's not given. So, so we've got to see God as he really is. Now, you know, you know this, and I, I noticed you guys had this up here. You know, this is, this is our, our mission statement. Our functional mission statement is to change the way the world sees God. And, you know, many people are just like, well, why would that be important? Well, as you know from being in this church, Isaiah 52 tells us that the whole reason that people are oppressed, that God's people are oppressed, and the whole reason God's people live in lack is because they don't see God as he is. And, and, and Isaiah talks about the fact that when they see God as he is, man, that's where they're going to start proclaiming, you know, that, that, uh, uh, all of these things. So seeing God as he is is absolutely essential to actually experiencing what God has to offer. You know, think of yourself like a, a mirror. You know, what, what goes out into the world around us from us is really just a reflection of what we behold. You know, one of my statements I've probably made for the last 
30 or 35 years is you become what you behold. Wherever you are placing your attention, uh, you are transforming into that, even if you don't want to. Have you ever noticed that if you stay, like, like for instance, if today you still have anger or grudge or in your heart against one of your parents, uh, uh, have you ever noticed how often people tell you you're just like that parent? <laughs> you know why? Because see, it doesn't matter if you're beholding something because you like it or because you dislike it. Whatever you behold you become transformed into whatever you're holding in your consciousness, whatever you're holding in your mind. So our life is like, like a mirror. The way we're influencing the world around us is just like a mirror. Whatever we are beholding is reflecting to the world around us. And so in our relationship with God, this means that if I don't see God the way He is, I am reflecting an improper image to the world around me. So, <clears throat> Hebrews 1.3 says this. Actually, I want to read more of Hebrews 1. I'd like to read 1.3, but I'm just going to read verse 3 for right now. Hebrews 1.3 says this. It says that, that Jesus is the express image and the exact representation of God. Now, how many times... And you probably don't do it now. You guys are in a good church. You've got a good pastor. You're, you're, you're hearing a, a really good Bible-based word. Uh, so you may have already sorted this out. Some, some, you know, sometimes it doesn't dawn on us. But how many times in the past did you struggle with the idea of the God in the Old Testament looks nothing like what Jesus in the New Testament? How many of you ever struggled with that? <clears throat> Most, most, of the, most of the Christian world has never reconciled that. And what that tells you is they are not looking at God through the life of Jesus. They're making an intellectual comparison between God and Jesus. And intellectually, they can't make those pieces, make those pieces come together. Now... <clears throat> In Isaiah, he said this. He said that he said that the the that the name of God is blasphemed continually because of what the leaders have taught them. Now, I want you to understand something. For about four thousand years, even though God spoke to the people. And, re and remember this. In the Old Testament, this is so important. God gave the people an interpretive factor. In other words, he gave them a factor so that when you hear my word, if you will factor this in, you'll never misunderstand it. You'll never misinterpret it, even when you can't intellectually sort it out. And he says, in Psalm, I believe it was Psalm 138, I think, he says, I have exalted above all things my word and my name. So God puts his word and his name on an equal level. So, and we talked about this this weekend. So those of you in a seminar, this is a little bit of a review and it won't hurt you. But, you know, stop and think about it. If I read a story in the Old Testament... And somehow or another, it, it leads me to the conclusion that God is testing and, 
and making it hard and bringing hardship upon those people. The question I would have to ask myself then is, what name of God identifies God as having that characteristic? Because there's not a name of God that says, Jehovah who torments you. There's not a name of God that says, Jehovah who tests and tries you. You say, yeah, but it's right there in the Bible. I'm not saying it's not in the Bible, but I'm saying if you don't use the right interpretive factors, you will just reach a subjective conclusion about what that means about God. You ever read any of those stories and God says to, I believe, I believe like in Saul's case, it happened a couple other times, God say, I want you to go in this place. I want you to kill everything that breathes. I want you to kill the soldiers. I want you to kill the children. I want you to kill the women. Kill their dogs. Kill everything. You ever look at that and go, how in the world could that be a God of love? Have you, have you ever done that? I mean, it's legitimate. There's nothing wrong with you that you ask those questions. As a matter of fact, you should ask questions, but you should always know how to find the answers. See, remember, Jesus said that Hang all the law and the prophet on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And of course, then we know the implication is to love yourself too. So this means I can't go back anywhere in the scripture and interpret anything, no matter how fierce it looks, how brutal it looks, if I just look at it and take the obvious from the intellectual reading of it, I'll never reach the right understanding of what happened. So, you know, for me, there have been passages of scriptures that I've just had to say, you know, God, I can't understand how love is a part of this, so I'm not going to interpret it. I'm not going to come up with a, a, a meaning for this. I'm not going to come up with some way of understanding you until you can show me how love is in this. You know, you know, you know what was happening in those examples? You know, today, the Antichrist nations, which are the Islamic nations, Allah, his original name was Baal. And the Antichrist nations that we, and by the way, you probably don't know this, this year, Islam has murdered 90,000 Christians in the Middle East. You haven't heard that on the news, have you? 90,000. They kept, over, uh, they kept over a half a million people from being able to worship on Resurrection Sunday. They burnt down hundreds, if not thousands, of churches. You know why that those nations are there? You, you know why Islam is here today? Because those people that God said, go in there and wipe them out, all of them, and Saul didn't do it, and many times children of Israel didn't do it, those are the very people that today their descendants are worshipers of Allah who exist for one reason, kill everybody that is not a Muslim. That's the ultimate intention of that religion. So, you see, love has a protective element to it. You know, I'll see Christians on television saying, you know, I don't believe in capital punishment. And God would never do this. Really? I can show you a bunch of places where God did it. Why would God have capital punishment if God's God of love? Well, I'll tell you what. Go, go ask 
some of these people that have been murdered by violent offenders that have been arrested and released and arrested and released and arrested and released because that's one of those things where you protect the innocent first. And even though the guilty may have to suffer a punishment, doesn't mean God doesn't love them. You know, we had a guy in our church one time. Uh, he didn't really want part of our church. His brother was a guy murdered somebody. And so he started coming to our church to gain cover. And so his, his brother called me one day and said, you need to take a stand for my brother. You know, you need to stand behind him. Man, the news media is after him. I said, okay, tell him to come to church. Not I will. He came to church that night. And uh, I said, uh, Scott, now everybody here knows, you know, this is all in the news. And I said, you know, I don't know if you're guilty or not. I said, but I want you to understand something. If you're guilty, you deserve to be put to death. But I also want you to know that if you're guilty and you're found guilty, God still loves you. And I will remain to be your friend, and I'll do everything I can to introduce you to the love of God so that when you face this penalty that you deserve, you can go into eternity knowing Jesus. Amen. See, a fool only learns by consequences. So when you remove the consequences from people that do harm to people, you know what they do? They keep doing harm to people. So, see... We just look at stuff and we get a subject. You know what we're really saying? I wouldn't put anybody to death, so obviously God's like me. And so he wouldn't put anybody to death. See, there's a, there's a lot of things in the, a lot of things about when I first got saved. You, any of you guys ever heard me speak much? You've heard me say this. When I first got saved, I, I don't know how many things I came across in the Bible that I did not like. And many times I'd be like, God, if that's me, I'd do it this way. If I was doing that, I don't want you to know how this would go. Anybody ever read the Bible and think that? Like, good thing I'm not God. <laughs> but you see, the problem is we don't know God. We don't know who He is. I mean, we know He's the Father of the Lord Jesus. We know He's the Creator. But we don't really know His character and nature the way that Jesus presented His character and nature. So... You remember that scripture when Jesus quoted, he was talking to the, he quoted from the book of Isaiah and he's speaking to the religious people and he says, with your lips, you honor me, but your heart's far from me. And, but then he qualified how that came to pass. He said, because you teach the tradition of men as as if that's the commandments. You know, I'll tell you something. As a whole, the church today has the name of Jesus on their lips. But remember, if something's in your heart, it, it, it determines your identity. It determines how you interpret the world around you. And I'm convinced that because of what religion has done to us, we don't really know how to relate to Jesus as Lord or how to have him be the core of our heart, the core of our beliefs. So, so let's kind of just dive through this. You know, the, the, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John was written specifically for a particular group of people. You see, John ministered primarily to Hellenist Jews or to, or to Greeks. And if I remember correctly, I think he was in Ephesus. And You know, Ephesus was a city that in the middle of that city it had a temple, 
And, and when you would come into the city, there were stone carvings of vaginas at all the major roads. And you would follow, I'm not kidding, and, and you're talking about wicked. And so you would follow, and at any place you were supposed to turn, there would be another carving of a vagina. And that would lead you to the temple where you would go to this temple, and, and as you would worship pagan gods, you would do it having sex with, with temple prostitutes. And these are the people that John was ministering to. And so these people, they had this, they had this Hellenistic background where Greek philosophy was the main thing. Greek mysticism was the main thing that drove them. Now, what we don't understand when, when we read the, any of the writings of John is all of his writings were very specifically, he used the terminology that they used. And his writings were very specifically designed to help believers who really did not have a background in what we call the Old Testament. But, and now, I want, I want you to understand something. This whole concept of Old Testament and New Testament is, is, is a lie. When, when the apostles were writing what we call the New Testament, they, they would have considered it blasphemy for us to call that Scripture. They weren't, they weren't trying to replace the Scripture. Every time they mention the Scripture, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. Now, when, and I, don't want to, I hope I don't offend anybody, but it, you know, if I do, it just means you've got something to deal with. But, you know, when, when Catholicism came into being, see, the Catholic Church, word Catholic means universal. When the universal church came into being, the, the goal was not to get people to convert to uh, worshiping Jesus. The goal was to get people to, to convert to the church. And as a universal church, this meant they would accept and incorporate all religions into their church. Catholicism was never truly meant to be a Christian, uh, a Christian church. Uh, they only identified with Jesus because they believed if they did what they did under the banner of the cross that their armies could beat all other armies and they could basically take over the world. So, so Catholicism made it against the law for, for Jewish believers to observe the Sabbath. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, every year at Christmas, if you're on my website, every year at, at holidays like that, I release something that just talks to you about, look, you know, do this unto the Lord and don't worry about people who want to criticize you for it. Every year I get bombarded by these people who, who you know, like, man, December the 25th, that's the day of the sun, God. I know that. I, I know that's not when Jesus was born. Matter of fact, I think I do know when Jesus was born. But, you know, December the 25th is the day of the sun, God. And, you know, but what they don't understand is you worship God on Sunday. Sunday, the reason the church changed the Sabbath from Saturday until Sunday is because that's the day of the sun god. That's the day of honoring the sun god. And so, so they, they did not want us to have the Scripture because in the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures tell us everything about how to interpret what Jesus did. And ironically, then the, then the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus tells everything to interpret who God is. And so by alienating us from the Scripture, then, then there could be incorporated into the doctrine all of these paganistic ideas and paganistic philosophies. So, so 
for 2,000 years or 1,700 years, we have not learned the scriptures. So we've, we've dove into the New Testament totally ignorant of the character and the nature of God, totally ignorant of some of the most important aspects of how faith works and how God works and you know, how love works and all these kinds of things. And, and so we have no interpretive base to understand almost everything is written in the New Testament because we've rejected the Scriptures. And so today, most of our interpretations and most of the places that people get off into error and struggle and off the rails is because they're subjectively interpreting the Word of God based on either occult or humanistic philosophies. And so as Gentiles, we have to realize there's going to be areas in this that I'm going to struggle with that I don't even know that I've struggled with because it's been my culture. It's been what I've grown up in. And I ain't going to beat myself up for it. I'm not going to condemn myself. I'm just going to keep learning the truth and keep growing in the truth. So, so I, want to, I want to read through here, if you don't mind, just some of, some of the Gospel of John. I want to talk about this and why this is so important and, and, and what, why John uses some of the terminology he uses. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, again, remember, Jesus is being identified as the Logos. Now, the, one of the reasons Logos is used of the Word of God is because Logos gets into the logic, the reasoning, all of the internal factors of what God really intended when He spoke a word. Yeah, I remember I was driving down the road one time with somebody, and I, uh, I had grease on my hands because I had to stop and work on my car. And this was back in the, in the early 70s, and, or might have been the late 60s. And, you know, we didn't have air conditioners in our cars back then. So, so you know, it, it was a warm summer day, and so we had the back windows kind of rolled down and, you know, letting some air flow through there. And we were on the way to go home so I could wash my hands. And so this person had some clothes hanging in the, in the, in the back. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye that their clothes were getting ready to blow out the window. And... Uh, I couldn't get them because if I had them, I would have ruined them because I had grease on my hands. So I just said it, I said it real abruptly, get, get those clothes, get those clothes. Well, they didn't turn around and get their clothes. They said, why are you talking to me so mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you'd just seen what went out the window, you'd understand. <clears throat> A subjective interpretation was made about why I was saying what I was saying the way I was saying it. And even though I brought something to help somebody because they didn't understand all the circumstances involved in it, it became something that created a conflict. You know something? That's kind of the way we are with God. We take so many things that he says. And see, I'm not saying we're bad people. I'm not saying we don't want to walk with God or we don't want to serve God. I'm just saying we have trouble actually knowing who God is because we don't have, we don't have that interpretive factor programmed into our mind when we approach everything about God. So in the beginning was the Logos. And he uses the word Logos because the Greeks, they, they use the word Logos to describe the organizing factor of all of creation. And so he's wanting to make sure they understand that God, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the organizing factor to everything that's ever that's ever that's been created. So, <clears throat> so he says, 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that is made. You know, let me just toss this out. This is real interesting. And I had a couple of people ask me this question this weekend, and so I'm not being critical of you for asking questions. I'm always glad when people ask questions. But, you know, because, because I, I have a doctorate in alternative health. I had a clinic for years, and I treated every, every kind of disease, but our, our main thing was substance abuse and, uh, and eating disorders. And, um, and so people are always like, you know, you know Jim, I, I'm not sure if I should, if I should do this because, because, you know, some people say that doing this, using this type of medicine, or this, you know, is, is, is of the devil. Now, wait a minute. This scripture right here just said that through him and by him, all things were created. So are you telling me that God created something natural in this world and it's of the devil? Now, you could use it in a wicked way. You could take a truth that God has given you, and you could share that truth, and it could help somebody, but then you not tell them it's from God, tell them it's from somewhere else, and they'll be deceived, but that still doesn't make that truth wicked. Does that make sense to you? There is nothing inherently evil within itself. It's just all the intention that, that we have in applying it and who we give the glory to. Because he created everything. So it says in verse 3, all things were made uh, through him. Without him, nothing was made that is made. Verse 4 says, now in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. Now I talked about this yesterday. The Gnostics or the Hellenists, they flip this around backwards, and we don't realize how much we have flipped this around backwards. See, in Jesus is the life. And the life is the light of men. And, and, and if you really want to get set free from your pursuit of knowledge, I don't think I have any of these with me, but I have a series called The Trifecta, Life, Light, and Love that really dives into this and, and, and breaks this apart and shows you how to connect to the life of God. But, see, our thinking is, if I get light, if I get understanding, if I get revelation, that will cause me inherently to have more life. No, it doesn't. Because we're flipping that scripture around and saying that life comes from obtaining more light. And that is absolutely the opposite of what it says. But that is exactly how Gentiles think. Is, I, mean, I mean, when's the last time you've been in trouble? You're saying, man, I just, need, I just need to read another book. I need to hear another sermon. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. But you know, there's a saying that I like that, that, that comes out of Eastern thought. And by the way, Jesus was Eastern, by the way, uh, in case you don't know that. Uh, it comes out of Eastern thought that says, if you think the book will solve the problem, don't read the book. If you think the teacher will give you the solution, don't listen to the teacher. In other words, we can't make anything else our source. And that's what we're doing. We're making knowledge our source. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. When we come to Jesus, see, see, like the person who tries to make knowledge their source, let's say if it's financial or physical, whatever. let's say you're facing a problem, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to get this information, 
And, and when I get enough information, I'm going to have my big breakthrough. But what you're probably going to do, and I, I see this in health all the time. A person learns everything they can about this health problem. And, and so now that they understand it more, they start passing judgments about themselves about how they got there. And you know what? They're nearly always wrong. But if we had gone and experienced the life first, the light would have immediately, the understanding of how we got there would immediately come to us. You, because you see, you can't solve your problem by passing subjective judgments about how you got there. Because as long as you're in the darkness, you can't see what really happened. I don't, need I don't need answers to my problems. I need solutions to my problem. And it's amazing when you connect with Jesus, you find the solution. Because the real truth is, for us, information is our idolatry. Information is what I go to instead of praying. Insp information is what I go to instead of locking myself up with God, communing with the Lord, wrapping myself around Him, fasting, seeking God in every way that I know how. Instead, I'm just going to keep gathering information. And, and then we find ourselves 20 years down the road, sicker, broker, with the same problems that we've always had. And we just can't, and then it's like God just let me down. No, you replace God with information. And sadly, you probably replace God with the wrong information. That's bad, isn't it? Everybody still with me? Y'all not near as excited about this as I am, I don't think. <laughs> Now, and again, this is a little bit of rehash for people in the seminar, some parts of this. But I want you to understand, here's what light does. Light shines on the path so that you know what path to walk to go toward the life, to go toward the source. But like I said in this weekend, see, information can become a, the illuminated path, so to speak, that you walk to reconnect with God, or it can become the obstacle to keep you from reconnecting with God. It can become the substitute for God himself. And man, we never want to get there. See, we don't even, we don't want the Bible to become a substitute for God. And, and, and see, the Jews had done that. Everybody understand that? Verse 6. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw verse 6 in here just for fun. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came as a witness to bear witness uh, to the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear uh, witness of the light. Now, an interesting thing about John, and, and this is important and kind of important kind of understanding Jesus. See, if you if we knew the scriptures, we would recognize hundreds of fulfillments of scriptures and hundreds of fulfillments of prophecy, and we would never question. You know, people are questioning, how do I really know Jesus? I'll tell you how you know. When you go back and find a hundred scriptures that were written, you know, anywhere from two to 3,000 years before he came, that he fulfilled just exactly to the letter in the moment, you lose all doubt in your mind that he is who he claimed to be. Now, every year... There was a certain line in, in the, the Levitical priesthood who had the responsibility for picking out the Passover lamb. And the priest would go to, oh, guess, where they, guess where they kept the Passover lambs, where they raised them? Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? 
And so the priest would go down to Bethlehem where they kept the Passover lambs, and he would examine the lambs to try to find one without, without blemish. And he, would, and he would come through the, the, uh, back to uh, um, Jerusalem, and he would come through the eastern gate, and, and the people would be so excited that the Passover lamb was coming that they would be out there with palm leaves and, and they would be, because they were, they, were look, they were looking at the Passover lamb reminding themselves that one day they were going to see the real Passover. One day this was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah and a real person. And you know, it's interesting, the word, the word feast... Uh, as it's used in the Hebrew language, there's two words that are related to the feast. And one of them means remembrance. And the other one means something like of things to come. And so all the feasts were to remind people of these things that were going to be coming in the future. So, you know, on, on this four days before the Passover, the priest would come walking through Jerusalem on that eastern road. Well, guess who came along at exact time that the priest was getting ready to come with the, with the type of Passover lamb. Jesus came walking down. That's why they met. That, and see, they had already heard about him. They had already seen. They already knew who he was. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Jesus did, I think there were four messianic miracles that all through Jewish history, they said the man that can do these miracles will be the Messiah. And he had done all of them. Every one of them. You know, one thing is he, 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 he uh, made a mute speak. Well, see, the way the, way the priest would, would take you through deliverance is, you know, they'd do it sort of like a charismatic. They would, they would tell the demon it had to say its name. And, and so the problem is if a person's mute, he couldn't say his name. So only the Messiah then could, because they didn't think he'd get somebody free if, if the demon didn't give his name. And so only the Messiah could, could, you know, make a mute person speak. Well, Jesus fulfilled that. Uh, <clears throat> leprosy, well, because it was considered a curse from God, only the Messiah could, could heal somebody of a curse that God had put on them in their minds. Jesus healed a bunch of lepers. One of, one of my favorite ones is, you know, they knew that the body started decomposing after three days in the grave. And so only the, and they'd seen a lot of people raised from the dead. I mean, that wasn't new with Jesus. But they'd never raised anybody from the dead that had been dead for more than three days. Why do you think Jesus diddled around whenever Lazarus died? <laughs> he wanted to show them that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the resurrection. And so Jesus had worked all of the miracles that they had, they themselves in their own doctrine had said only the Messiah could do. And this is really why the priests hate him. They didn't hate him because, they did, because he didn't match the, re, the requirements. They hated him because he was going to take our jobs away from them. Yeah. It's a money thing. Controlled people, money. So there comes Jesus. All the people knew he had done all these miracles. And he comes four days before the Passover. Well, prior to this, you have Jesus walking along, and he comes up, and, and, and John is down there baptizing. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Well, here's the unique factor about that. John would have been, if he had continued in his family's lineage, he would have been the next high priest. Remember, his father was a high priest. John was the only man alive, the only man on the face of the earth that, according to Scripture, had the right to identify 
the Passover lamb. Because he was the next high priest. And so when John, the son of a high priest, says, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, I got news for you, that carried some weight with those people. John was a critical factor and someone who was qualified by the scriptures. But see, our problem is we don't know the scriptures. He was qualified by the scriptures to be the only person on earth that was qualified to say, this is the real Passover. He really will take away the sins of the world. Does that not kind of help your confidence just a little bit? <laughs> so in verse 10, it says of Jesus, he was in the world. The world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right, the authority to become children of God. And to those who believed in his name, uh, who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you notice this distinction that he makes between receiving Jesus and believing and being born again. See, many people think that because they except they receive the idea, Jesus is the Son of God, then that automatically means they're born again. No, it doesn't. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble, but they don't get born again. Because, see, what we call getting born again happens when you believe some very specific things. Not just that, he, not just that He's the Son of God, but when you believe that God raised Him from the dead, as the Scripture says. In other words, He really did become our sin. He really did suffer the punishment that we would have had to suffer. He really did go to Hades. He really was separated from God. He really did have to use His faith to come up out of the grave. He really did ascend into heaven and, and cast Satan out of heaven. And He really did receive an inheritance. And He really did sit down at the right hand of God and say, This is all yours. That's what it means to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And when we believe that, then, and just, just believing that doesn't mean anything. That, just believing that does not bring you to salvation. It just means now you have the right to come to salvation. Because the question is, if that's who Jesus is, will he be your Lord? And if Jesus is not your Lord, He is not your Savior. But see, again, the problem is we, we intend that. And it's no mean we're not saved because we have that intention, but we really don't even know what Lordship means from a scriptural point of view. See, if Jesus is my Lord, then He is also my teacher. And as my teacher... This means that the only beliefs that I am going to embrace about God or about life, about me, really about anything, are going to be those beliefs that are based on His life, His example, His teachings, His death, burial, and resurrection. If He's my Lord, that's the way it is. I'm His disciple. And see, the disciples, they just follow, follow Him around, just watch. How did He do that? How did He handle this situation? How did He answer this question? What is, his, what is his theological definition of this? What is his doctrinal position? See, when Jesus, you know, when Jesus said, he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, 
because I'm lowly, you know, meek of spirit. He said, I'll give you rest to your soul. See, we don't, we don't even know what that means. We don't realize, yes, there's that concept of yoking up two oxen and making sure they're getting in step, but it's bigger than that because to, to yoke up with somebody and get in step with them means you accept their doctrine. And they knew that's what he was talking about. If He said, you know, you can keep doing this the way you're doing it. You can keep doing this the way the Pharisees, Sadducees taught. You keep doing it this way if you want to. But if you won't rest to your soul, then you've got to learn of me and take my interpretation of the Scripture. You've got to take my picture of who God is. And if, if, if I am not taking on His interpretation of Scripture, if He is not my doctrinal foundation, if, if I'm not seeing God through Him and what He taught and what He modeled, then, then really I haven't taken His yoke, which means I'm not really learning of Him, which means really He's not my Lord. Now, this, this is pretty radical, isn't it? You know what? I like radical. I don't like boring. You know what the word, the basic meaning of the word holy means? So the word holy basically means not common. I'm not a common Christian. I'm not a normal Christian. Matter of fact, I'm not even a Christian. I never refer to myself as a Christian. God never called us Christian. Jesus never called us Christian. The only people called us Christian were the Gentiles at Antioch that were criticizing us. God called me his son. Jesus called me his brother. Jesus called me his disciple. I'm a disciple. I'm a believer. I'm a son of God. I'm not a Christian. But the problem is we think we're Christians. And Christians live by what's normal based on what every other Christian is doing and thinking and believing. I don't want to be normal, and I don't want to be like everybody else, particularly if what everybody else is doing ain't working. <laughs> Verse 14. So you said i got to finish by three. Okay. <laughs> he didn't even flinch. He didn't even flinch. Verse 14. And the Word. I mean, if the Word became flesh... Isn't it interesting that when I don't understand something, I look everywhere except the Gospels? You know, I was sitting in a meeting, 1983, thereabouts, and I was listening to somebody that I really respect, still respect, but just because I disagree with them on this point doesn't mean I don't respect them. But I was sitting with somebody who was one of the most well-known teachers in, in the world at that time, and there were thousands of us in here and in this room, and, and he, said, he said, I'm telling you, as a New Testament believer, if you want to understand this thing, you, you need to really just live in the epistles. You need to make studying the epistles your, you know, your focus and understanding the epistles. And then, you know, we're all writing this stuff down. And I'll never get, just as I'm writing that, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I never said that. And the Holy Spirit said, if you make the, and I didn't understand it at the time. He said, if you make the epistles your source, you will always be confused. Now, not because the epistles aren't true. But you see, I can only... Here's the way, here's the way truth works. The, the Hebrew word for truth, and, I, and I'm still jumping ahead on this. I started to define this earlier, but I'm going to go ahead and define it now. I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. 
see, when you read down here just, just, a, just a little bit, it tells us that, um, that Moses gave us the law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. Now, most of us read that to say he gave us new truth, new information. That's not what it says in the Greek language. And, you know, John says over in, in 1 John, he says, this is, none, none of these commandments are new. This is all the same stuff that you've heard from the beginning. The Hebrew word for truth has three, three letters in it. And the first letter, and by the way, in, in Hebrew, every individual letter has its own definition. And then the three letters combined together have a combined definition. And then the context that it's spoken in brings it a definition. And so when you define a Hebrew word, all of those factors have to be congruent. In other words, you can't just pick the one that you want. And so one of, and one of the things that, that they look at is, that, of course, the numeric value has a factor. But then they also look at the position that the letter is in in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first letter for truth is in the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet. The second letter for truth is in the middle of the Hebrew alphabet. And the third letter for truth is, is at the end of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the Jews say truth is not understanding what's in front of you. Truth is understanding what's in front of you or what's being said based on everything else that's been said and everything else that will be said. And so it's not truth if all of those pieces come together. You ever come home, those of you who got kids, and then, of course, there's the lucky ones. Uh, <coughs> so those of you who got kids, you, you come home, and your kids are fighting and tearing up the house, acting like savages. Well, they're not acting like savages. They probably really are. But anyhow, they're doing what they do, you know. And you walk in, it's like, what, what are you doing? Why, why, are you beating on their, why are you beating on your brother or sister? And they're like, and, and you know, the brother says, well, he, just, he just started beating me up. Now, so we look at that and go, okay, I walked in. I saw him beating on him. So that's part of the truth. So I know which one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Uh, uh, punish now <laughs> or correct I, sometimes I just go for punishment but anyhow <clears throat> so I'm, I'm basing that on what I'm seeing right here in front of me right now I'm basing that on this information but you know if you got kids if you listen long enough then the one that's getting beat up that seems like the victim the other one's going to say yeah but before you got here he threw an egg and hit me in the head And usually you trace this thing back, and there's a whole history that totally changes what you're seeing and hearing right at that moment. That's the way truth is. If you detach anything in the New Testament from anything in the Old Testament, you're not going to end up with truth. So... This word for truth here, when it talks about Jesus brings grace and truth, this word for truth is more in line with the idea of what God intended in what he said. It's not just what he said, but what did he intend? Because when you get the, when you get the beginning of it and the end of it, you're able to fully understand why God said what he said. See, Moses brought us, he brought us the law. Now, now, let me say this, and this is repetition from this weekend, but everybody needs to hear what I'm about to say about this. 
There is not one place in the Bible that says the law is bad. We think it does, but it doesn't. In fact, the Bible is very clear that the only problem with the law is us. What we did to it. How we twisted it all up. Now, <clears throat> for generations, for, for a few thousand years, the children of Israel were called the children of Israel. They weren't called Jews. And the children of Israel, their connection to God was that he was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they knew that Abraham related to God through faith and that God counted unto him as righteousness. So they lived by the faith of their fathers and they knew all the way through those periods of time that God was a faith God. And they understood that the commandments were given to show them how to have civil order, to show them how to have economic stability, to show them how to have optimal physical health, to show them how to have meaningful relationships. And you just go down. In other words, everything that pertains to life. And basically it came down to this. If I want to love my neighbor as myself, then the commandments tell me how to do that. So love can't be defined independent of the commandments. And the word commandments is not, even, is not even an accurate translation of the Hebrew word because it's more like prescriptions. These are prescriptions about how to have a good life. These are prescriptions for what's ailing you emotionally and relationally and that sort of thing. So, so every, really what God did is he showed us how that if, if we wanted the very best quality of life that you could possibly have, even not being born again, he showed us how to have it. But the catch was, it all had to be interpreted and implemented from the motive of love. That was the key. Now, <clears throat> as Israel backslid, and by the way, the Bible tells us as believers, we should look at the nation of Israel really like an individual. It's an example to me. I should look at what they did, you know, historically and, and, and everything that happened to them and understand that this is a type, this is, a, this is an example for me as a believer to understand more about, about how to live life. <clears throat> so the children of Israel, as they got into idolatry, then, then and there, there was a reason God had to, had, to, had to basically break apart the nation of Israel. Because, see, the nation of Israel was supposed to build a temple that was going to be a house of prayer for all nations, and they were supposed to be the light on the hill that would show the world who God was until the Messiah would come. So when they had so corrupted, not just their own lives, but corrupted the possibility of the world ever seeing God as He was, the only thing God could do to protect the world was to break them apart. And so the children of Israel go into captivity. And so while the children of Israel are in captivity, and again, this is review for somebody that were in this seminar this weekend. When the children of Israel went in captivity, they decided, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess if we'd ever obeyed God, but they did what we always do. They just kind of went off the rails with this. And so they said, what we've got to do is, we've, you know, we've got, to get, we've got to get to the place where we never violate God's word. But see, love was not the motive. Being right was the motive. 
And being right is driven by pride. And pride and arrogance is, is what evil is all about. And pride and arrogance is what gives rise to iniquity, which ends up rejecting God's word and replacing it with something else. So what they did is they took all the commandments and they said, and they created what's called fence laws. Now, a fence law would be like this. If you're not supposed to step on the grass over here, rather than us running the risk of you stepping on the grass, let's build a big old fence that you can't get over. So they started making other laws that would keep you from violating the real commandments. So if the commandment said, don't do any work on the Sabbath, all right, then we better define what that means. Well, you can't walk more than this far. You know, you can't cook, you know, you can't do but just enough, a certain amount of this. Can't do but just a certain amount. And so they built these fence laws, but these fence laws replaced the commandments of God. And every time Jesus ever spoke harshly about the law or anything, he, he always points out in, in context that he was speaking harshly about the man-made law, not the law of God. Matter of fact, he'll always say, you know, you set aside the commandments of God for the commandments of men, for your traditions. So, so they literally had thousands of fence laws, and they were so the the whole nation was obsessed with the fence laws, missing because see now, this is where they became Jews. In captivity, they created really. This is where they they uh, uh, departed from the scripture, and they wrote they wrote the Talmud of the Jews. And the Talmud was all of these other laws. And this is where they became called uh, uh, Jews or Judaizers. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the, the whole concept of relating to God by faith and God being a God of love was totally lost because of the Judaizers. And the Judaizers had two primary denominations, and, and that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, of course, they had the scribes, which were considered the ultimate elite of of the scripture because, because all they did is rewrite the scriptures day and night, you know, because they didn't have printing presses, so the only way they could have more scrolls is have somebody write them. And so they were the lawyers. That's what a scribe was. And, you know, they were the ones that, that were supposed to ultimately settle everything. So, so Moses gave us truth, but he, and, and he did give us the names of God to become the interpretive factors. But ultimately, when Jesus comes on the scene, now... See, up until this time, there had never been a person that had seen God. Moses came as close as anybody. But now, over these thousands of years, people that weren't born again, people didn't know God, people hadn't seen God, they just came up with their own intellectual concepts of how to interpret and apply God's Word. But Jesus shows up as the manifestation. He is the Word in flesh. So if, I, if, I'm, if I'm confused about how this should be applied, I need, I need to first look at his life. How did he treat people? How did he talk to people? You know, what did he do? What was his teaching? And, and through his life, his teaching, his death, burial, and resurrection, I have the perfect, not only the perfect interpretation and application of the Word of God, but because it is the perfect manifestation of everything about God, I can know who God is, exactly know who God is. 
And even when I can't look at something in the Old Testament and see the love of God in it, I, still, I know who Jesus is, and I know that God is, is no different than Jesus. And, and as long as I'm seeing it from a harsh, mean, cruel, judgmental, vindictive perspective, I am not seeing it. And you know what? I don't know about you. See, most of us are not comfortable not knowing something. And so we feel like in every doctrinal position, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to take a side. But you know what? We've just got to become comfortable owning the fact that, you know what? I really don't get this. And so God, when, you know, when this is important for my life, I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to go back and see what this says. And when, I can, when, it, when it becomes important that I need to know how, how, to, how to walk with you with this, I'm opening. So you teach me. You take me on. There's been hundreds of things that I've just let lay there for 20 or 30 years. Every now and then I'm going to go be back reading the scriptures. And I'll be like, still don't get it. <laughs> so just let me know. <laughs> I, I moved. Did you get my change of address? <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't, I don't want this to be a, a condemnation base. I don't want this to be, you know, a, a negative thing. But at some point, we've got to say, well, wait a minute. Is everything I believe about me, can I validate everything that I think I'm supposed to be or everything that I really am? Can I, can I validate everything about me by looking at the life of Jesus and say, yep, if Jesus was here, this is exactly what he would do because, I, because this is what he did. You know, we, we, we deceive ourselves by acting like I'm praying about the will of God. Well, here's an idea. Shut up. Open your Bible. If you, you know, if you can't figure it out through the scriptures that were taught, just look at the life of Jesus and, and just see, it, did he do this? You know, one of the things Jesus never said to anybody, this, this be, I'll be posting this this week. One of the things Jesus never said to anybody, you know what, just stay in sin. It don't matter because God loves you. <laughs> but you know what, you're seeing that all over Facebook and you're seeing that all over all, all, all over. The, the, the church world today. But, and the issue is not can you defeat that? You know, you might be struggling with something. You hadn't really won that battle in your heart yet. But the issue is have, have I settled for it in such a way that I'm willing to twist the Word of God so I can feel all right being in this sin? So, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to say if you've got a problem that you hadn't got solved, there's something wrong with you. But I am here to say, what, what's your attitude about that? Is, are you going to Jesus and looking at his life and what he did, what he taught? Are you looking at what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection and say, you know what? I don't, I don't like this. I don't have to settle for this. I may not know how to get out of this. You know, listen, I've gone to God. I can't even tell you how many times I've gone to God and just said, God, you know, Kurt, let me tell you, my, my doctrine on sin is this. And I, I think it's 100% in line with how God created us and how we function. The only sins I ever get tempted to do are the ones I really like. <laughs> and if you're in it, you're liking it. Now, you might not like the guilt you feel. You might not like the shame. You might really not like for anybody to find out about it. But you're doing what you're doing because you're getting out of it, what you're getting out of it. You know what? I've gone to God a lot of times. I said, God, 
you know I like this. And you know, really, there's this part of me that don't even want to get out of this. But there's this other part of me that knows it's going to kill me if I don't. And so you're going to have to leave me out of this. My eyes are so, my eyes are so closed into this, and my understanding has become so warped. I don't even see, I don't even see how to solve this problem. But you do. And so, so all I can tell you right now is my intention to follow you out of this thing. And it's my intention not to feed this, you know. And, and you know what? Just starting with intention. See, the Bible says, I didn't, I didn't get to read it because I went, made too many comments on other things. But it says about Jesus, he gave us grace for grace. You know what grace for grace is? I get enough grace to take hold of the grace for the next step. And it may just be one more step. But that's all right. And then I get grace for more grace. And I get grace for more grace. In other words, I keep, I keep moving forward. And all that really matters at this point is what is my intention and am I taking the step I know to take? That's it. Because how many of y'all know? And see, a lot of these issues, it's not even about being in sin. A lot of these issues are complicated. You know, some you know, as parents, we're looking at kids, you know, Got kids got substance abuse problems. Got kids got moral problems. You know, and you're looking at how do I how do I walk in love? this? what do I do? I, and, and because you love your kids, you're, you know, you're just your head is so messed up. But like I, I don't even know what to do. I'm so afraid of what's going to happen to this child. Or you know, I, I mean, life can get complicated, and it can get so complicated that we get overwhelmed. But the question is, are we going back to Jesus as our source? Are we wrapping our life around him? And, and, and it will amaze you if, you if you learn to commune with him. Wrap your life around, enter into the exchange where, you know, you know, where just in the deep recesses of your heart and your intimacy with him, you, you're seeing, you might not know how to get from here to a happy family, but you can at least start seeing a happy family even though you don't know how to get there. That's all you got to do is see the end and believe the end and make God your source on it. And, and it's amazing, see, once you connect to the life, suddenly light starts coming to you. You start getting understanding. But you can't get the light apart from the life, apart from connecting to Jesus, apart from Him being your source. So, you know, I, I've got to ask myself, it's, remember, Pray. The word pray means to judge or evaluate and reconcile. That's all it means. So that means I'm constantly looking at my life and saying, is there any part of my life that's not functioning like Jesus? I got to reconcile. Doesn't mean I make it right. It means that it starts in my heart. And, and it starts in your heart by always seeing the end from the beginning, always connecting to what the promise is, even if, even if you can't understand how to get there. Here's an important question. I, I really wish you'd write this on each other's foreheads <laughs> so that there's always somebody in your house to remind you until you, until you work this through. I'm going to tell you, one of the greatest blessings you could do for yourself is do a, a belief inventory. And just like, you know, Every, t every, time you every time you recognize a belief is kicking in, well, this is what I believe about this. Ask yourself this question. Where in the life, the teaching, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus can I validate that this, that, that this is, represents his yoke? And you'll start finding you've got a world of beliefs, probably not major beliefs, 
But you've got a world of little beliefs that are not based on anything Jesus ever said or did or accomplished. And suddenly, as we start weeding this stuff out, and you know, you're not digging in. You're not trying to dig in and find what's wrong. I'm just saying, as these things emerge, just ask yourself. And you'll start understanding why you got all these little foxes spoiling the vine in your life. Why you got all these little things breaking in. See, this is what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And it's not burdensome because the end result is life. It's never burdensome to experience life. Even if you have to experience, you know, some sense of sacrifice momentarily to get to the loss, I mean, to get to the life, the loss doesn't matter when you're experiencing the life. You know, the... Uh, I, I've, got a, I've got a book I'm working on because I'm always working on several books. But I've got a, work, a book I'm working on called Hunger for God or Hungry for God. And the church, the church is hungry for God, but they're trying to find a way to fulfill that hunger apart from the Lordship of Jesus. So let's, let's get a doctrine. Let's, let's twist grace. Let's twist the love of God. Let's twist this around to where basically I never have to surrender my life to Jesus and make him my source. You know what? You're just going to get hungrier. See, Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. You know, you know and I'm, I'm, I'm closing, but you know when Jesus, you remember when Jesus stood up and said, said, you know, I'm, I'm the water of life. Whoever drinks from this water never thirsts anymore. You know what's really interesting about that is at that very moment over in the temple, I can't remember if it was tabernacles that they were celebrating. And at a certain time of the day, the priest would go to the pool of Siloam, dip up a big old pitcher full of water, and he would come back and he would say, now we're praying for Jehovah to give us rain for this next growing season. And they would pour out this, this water as a drink offering and praying that God, you know, typifying the concept of rain and praying and, and, and even thanking God in advance for, for a good rainy season. At the very moment that that priest was standing over doing that, or maybe within seconds of when he did that, Jesus stood up and said, I'm the water of life. See, it doesn't matter if, you, if you're trying to quench your thirst at the temple. At the, in other words, it doesn't matter if you're trying to satisfy yourself at the most holy thing you can find. The question is, are you really trying to satisfy yourself in Jesus? Bow your heads with me, please. As you think about this morning and this message. Just, just think about this. All of this, following him as Lord, is so I can have the life that God wants me to have. So it really can be on earth as it is in heaven, starting in me. So I really can live at peace and have joy. So I really can walk in divine health and divine wisdom so that I can look at Jesus, oh, the mind of Christ, so I can look at Jesus and see how he did it and then I, then, then I have the mind of Christ because I've watched how he did it 
and I can make those same choices, and I can have those same beliefs. I really can have the wisdom of God because I watch it how He walked in wisdom, and that's how I'm going to put it in practice. Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my teacher. I want to be like you when I grow up. If there's areas of your life where you're saying, you know, I'm not saying there's something wrong here. I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm ready to examine every part of my belief system. I'm ready to examine every part of my lifestyle. I'm ready to examine every part of my behavior, every part of how I treat people. I'm ready to, to pour my life out here and really, I don't even have to solve these problems. Just any of these places that don't look like Jesus, I'm ready to just put that off, be done with it, and put on the new man that I really am in Christ and be that person that handles it a different way. Be that person that says it a different way. Be that person that does it a different way because that's the person that I really, really am. Now just, everybody just keep your heads bowed, continue praying. If you're here today and you say, Jim, you know, this is great, but, but you know what? I've never given my life to Jesus, I, I, you know, and I want to. Man, if I can have a new life, if I can have the life of God, and, and if I can really have, you know, understand how to live life and it work, I, I, I want that. So if you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, and you say, this is it, this, I'm ready to start making this journey, I want to pray with you and for you. I'm not going to call you the front. I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you or make you stand out. But right there where you're seated, I'd love to pray with you and for you. So if you'd like to invite Jesus into your life as Lord today, I want you to raise your hand real high, and I will pray with you right where you sit, and you can experience a new life starting today. Yes. Anybody else? Just slip your hand up real high. All right, just slip your hand down. Now, everybody look up here. Y'all have all probably heard this a bazillion times. I always tell people, I'm just going to give you the whole Bible. It's real simple. God is love, and love can only be fully expressed if it can give itself to another being who has the capability to receive it and pass it on. Therefore, since his nature is love, he had to have someone to express his love to. So God created the universe, he created planet Earth, and the whole universe exists for one thing, for planet Earth and for the people that God would put here. So God created a human race in his likeness and image. We are the only, we're the only species that not only has a total freedom of choice, but we have the freedom of comprehension to make choices. We have something besides our instincts to drive us. But more than anything else, the thing that's so unique about us, we are the only species that exists that is fully capable of experiencing the love of God. And that's, what it's, that's really what it's all about. And so, you know, God put man here, put man in a paradise, no sin, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no suffering, because that never was the will of God. If that was the will of God, he would have put it here in the garden. But you know what? Man, because man had the, he was, we're God-like, we're creating God's likeness and image, and we have authority over planet Earth, so man decided he wanted to work this thing another way, his way. And he did. And when he did, pain, suffering, sorrow, death, sickness, poverty, all of these things came into the world because of the choices that we made. God didn't bring them. God didn't send them. God didn't cause them. But if God had, if God had wanted to wipe us out, there would have been his vindication to wipe us out. But see, he created us to be his family. So it's like, I didn't create you to kill. I created you to be in a relationship with me. So even though you did this, even though you messed this up, I have a solution. And since man brought sin in the world, only a man could take sin out of the world. So Jesus was born of a virgin, 
and God was his father. His human body came from Mary, and he lived a life without sin. And at the end of his life, he was crucified. And on that, on that cross, every sin that we've ever committed or ever will commit or anybody in the world, God laid all of that iniquity on to the Lord Jesus. He became our sins. And therefore, he took the punishment that we deserve. He took the alienation from God that we deserve. He died the death that we deserve. He, he went to Hades just like we would if we, if we died, you know, with our sin. And, he, and in his faith, he was raised again. He conquered death, sin, the grave. He ascended to heaven, conquered the devil, cast Satan out of heaven so he could never go there and accuse us again. And uh, I sat down at the right hand of God and received an inheritance and said, here's the deal. I want to share all this with you. I, I want you to still have this incredible life of God. So if we are willing to believe that this is what God did, if we're willing to believe that Jesus really did all of this and that God actually raised him from the dead, if we're willing to believe that, then we can trust him. And if we trust him, we can make him our Lord. And it's just a choice. It's a choice that you're going to grow in every day. It's a choice you're going to learn what it means every day. It's, a, it's about a journey of walking with somebody that's going to finally show you how life works and how to bring all the pieces together and, and ultimately prepare you for eternity. So what we're going to do, you raise your hand. This is, you know, this is, you're ready to make this decision. Or maybe if you're, even if you're here today and you say, you know what, Jim, you know, I, I love God, but honestly, I've kind of strayed away from the path of lordship. I've kind of get, I'm kind of getting in my own thing a little bit and kind of leaving God out of, out of my life. And I'm, I'm making decisions that I don't care, you know, what the Bible says or how Jesus tells. I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. I, I really want to come back to this, this connection with God through the Lord Jesus. So wh whatever, whatever needs to happen in your life today, what we're going to do is everybody here is going to pray out loud. We're going to pray together. And whether this is the first time you've ever really made this commitment or whether this is just dealing with something in your life, then you connect with God around that for you. So every head bowed, every eye closed, and everybody let me lead you in a prayer. Everybody say, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father today, today I, choose I choose your truth. Your truth. I, believe I believe you are love. You are love. I believe you love me. I believe Jesus became a man, lived a sinless life, was crucified. I believe that he took my sin. I don't have to carry it around. He died the death that I deserve. I'll never taste death. I'll just cross over. He was alienated from you. I'll never be separated from you. He went to Hades. I'll never go. He fought the battle. To win over death. I'll never have to fight it. He cast Satan out of heaven. I'll never have to fight him. He received an inheritance. And he wants to share it with me. Jesus, I believe what you did for me. I believe what is yours is mine. Today, I call you my Lord. I call you my teacher. I call you my master. I'm going to follow you in this walk of love. And I thank you that at this moment, my sins are forgiven. I'm a new creation. God is my father. Heaven's my home. And I'm making this journey 
Give him a good hand clap of praise. Yeah.